Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 135, The Russo-Turkish War, Part 2. First, I want to thank all our newest patrons. We've got Ilian, Damian, Museum Archipelago. It was nice uh, having a lunch in the park with you the other day. And a kind donation from Kellen Nielsen. Now, a big extra thank you to all my donators and patrons uh, this month because I just got back from the U.S. And while there, I purchased a, I'd say a boatload, but a suitcase load of new books, both for the podcast and for the book. I'm in the late stages of writing about the First Bulgarian Empire. And really because of all you, I was able to kind of, I would say shamelessly spend because a lot of these, you know, obscure academic books are hideously expensive, like $70, $80 for a single book. But I could just remind myself that this is what you all patrons are funding me for so that I can uh, go out there and get these obscure texts so I can make the podcast and the book as great as they can be. So just a big thank you to all of you for letting me be shameless in my spending and uh, filling up my suitcase. All right. Now, Let's get into it. Last time, we saw the Constantinople Conference issue its recommendations for reforms and autonomy for the Ottomans' Balkan territories to be refused as the Ottomans implemented a new constitution. Meanwhile, Austria-Hungary and Russia agreed on the future of the Balkans, allowing Austria-Hungary to remain neutral while Russia attacked the Ottomans. But just as all this was happening, Serbia and Montenegro accepted defeat and returned to the status quo. Meanwhile, the exarch of the Bulgarian church was pressured by the Ottomans and prominent Bulgarians to resign before being fired and exiled for his help in raising awareness about the brutalities of the April uprising. Then, Russia finally declared war on the Ottoman Empire, passing through Romanian territory as that country declared full independence. The Russians soon crossed the Danube and rapidly advanced in north-central Bulgaria, catching the Ottomans off guard. The Russians, along with Bulgarian volunteers, soon captured three mountain passes and took key towns and cities in northern Thrace, before being pushed back to the passes by advancing Ottoman troops. To the east, the Russians advanced to a line held by Ruse, Razgrad, and Schumann. To the west, the Russians advanced until running into well-prepared Ottoman defenses at Pleven. Now, as we begin the episode today, the Ottomans are well dug in at Pleven, threatening Russia's supplies, crossing over a recently completed bridge at Svistov, not far away. Meanwhile, another Ottoman force is preparing a full assault on the Sheepka Pass, with the intent of crossing the mountains to aid the garrison at Pleven. It's a critical moment in the war as July turns into August, 1877. Now we'll begin with the second stage of the Battle of Sheepka. The pass had now been reinforced and was defended by 5,500 Bulgarians and an additional 2,000 Russians under the command of General Stolitov. Against them were 38,000 Ottoman soldiers under Suleiman Pasha. The first set of attacks began on the night of August the 9th when the Ottomans, made eight consecutive ferocious attacks, one after another after another. However, the defenders successfully beat them back each time. 
But at this point, the Ottomans were dug in less than 100 yards from the Bulgarian-Russian lines. Their artillery was brought up as they attempted to outflank the defenders and cut off their retreat and resupply lines to Gabrovo. Russian high command responded by sending reinforcements. Thus, on the third day of the engagement, Russian reinforcements began arriving as the fighting intensified. The Ottomans attacked all over, but focused um, in particular on a peak called St. Nicholas, which was almost entirely defended by Bulgarian volunteers. Now, the Ottomans quite wrongly assumed that the Bulgarian volunteers would be far easier to defeat than the professional Russian forces. Russian forces on a central hill did begin to retreat, but were ultimately reinforced and resumed their positions. Heavy fighting continued throughout another day, and on the fifth day, the fighting here saw the Ottomans reach the Russian trenches on St. Nicholas Peak before being driven back by a Bulgarian bayonet charge. This moment is immortalized in one of the most famous paintings of the war and really of all of Bulgarian history, and I'll try to put that on the blog post for this episode. Now, by the late stages of this battle, many Bulgarian and Russian soldiers were out of ammunition and resorted to throwing rocks and even the bodies of their dead comrades. Despite this desperation, they did succeed, and Suleiman Pasha was forced to end his second attempt to take the pass by the 14th of August, showing that he was deadly wrong in his assumption that the Bulgarian volunteers would simply not have the morale needed to hold up in such a desperate and difficult struggle. They did, and they were successful. Now, attention returned to the siege of Pleven. Russian high command decided on a plan for a third major assault there as the Romanian prince Carol arrived with his troops to assist. Carol was appointed commander of a joint force set to attack the Ottoman stronghold again soon. Meanwhile, another Russian squad retook Lovic from the Ottomans. Now, Osman Pasha did attempt to rush out of Pleven to prevent the Russians retaking Lovic, but he was too late. And this meant the Ottomans were effectively cut off from their main supply route. But it also meant retreating Ottoman forces from Lovic came in and swelled the garrison at Pleven to over 30,000 men. However, the Russian-Romanian force facing them numbered around 100,000 with far more artillery pieces. Now, after four more days of preparation, the third major assault on Pleven began on August 26th. As the Russian Tsar and the Romanian prince watched, their men engaged in brutal fighting and took several critical redoubts, only to then lose them in counterattacks. By now, the losses were mounting as the Russians counted 20,000 dead to the 5 to 6,000 dead that the Ottomans had faced. But with the cutting off of supply lines to Lovic, the fall of Pleven now seemed inevitable, even if it was clearly going to be a very difficult and bloody affair nonetheless. Now, around the same time as the Third Battle of Pleven, further south in Pazojik, the famous Bulgarian painter Stanislav Dopevsky, who had studied in Moscow, was arrested by the Ottoman authorities on suspicion of being a Russian spy. This is a pretty common occurrence for people with kind of foreign ties, even not to Russia specifically. They were not necessarily arrested, but a lot of foreigners in Ottoman territory in the Balkans during this time were treated very badly and under heavy suspicion of being spies. Now, Dostoevsky was taken to Constantinople, where he allegedly died of typhus in prison. It's a bit mysterious there. Now, 
He was ultimately proven completely innocent, but regardless, another figure of the Bulgarian Enlightenment was now dead, having never seen the opportunity, never had the opportunity to see their full potential in a free Bulgarian state. But that was one death of many. And by the end of August, now the Russians had managed to take some key positions at Pleven, and the Romanians had had some success elsewhere on the line, but going was still slow. On the 30th, another major attack began to commemorate Tsar Alexander II's name day. By the subsequent day, further Ottoman positions had been taken, but these forces then had to retreat, ending the third major push to finally take Pleven. The 1st of September saw Osman Pasha make some counterattacks and begin repairing his defenses. Again, Pleven was not going to fall so easily. Now, the first few days of September were relatively quiet as the forces around Pleven basically recovered. But to the south, Suleiman Pasha was preparing another attempt to take the Sheepka Pass. The defenders there had spent the previous weeks digging in further, but the fighting at Pleven also meant that there were no reinforcements for them. Now, on September the 5th, Ottoman artillery began bombarding the Bulgarian-Russian positions before an early morning assault saw the Ottomans successfully take one of the three peaks and thereby surround the nearby Russian positions. A few hours and several counterattacks involving bloody hand-to-hand fighting later, the peak was retaken from the Ottomans. Other Ottoman attacks to the north were also pushed back. Thus, after three bloody battles, the Bulgarians and Russians still held the vital mountain pass at Shipka. Meanwhile, the eastern front of the war saw some fighting, as the Ottoman forces there attempted to take some territory back but were forced to retreat, leading their commander to be recalled. Back at Pleven, fighting continued as further Ottoman reinforcements managed to get into the city despite the main supply lines being cut. At this point, the need to fully cut off the city by all, basically all routes, was more and more apparent to the Romanian-Russian force. By mid-September, a new commander named Edward Totleben arrived at Russian army headquarters and was appointed to take over leadership of the forces attacking Pleven. His experience defending Sevastopol when it was besieged in the Crimean War was seen as critical. Now, through September into October, Smaller-scale attacks on the city's defenses didn't make much progress, while further Ottoman reinforcements arrived. However, all that changed when on October 16th, Russian guard units under General Gorko managed to fully cut off Pleven from the rest of Ottoman forces. As a result, there was intense fighting around the village of Telish, near the Iskar River to the rear of Pleven, but the Russian lines held and the city was cut off. In light of this, Osman Pasha received orders to hold Pleven until his supplies ran out, at which point he was supposed to attempt a breakout to reach Ottoman lines. It was a tall order. Anyone who studied the Eastern Front of the Second World War will be maybe familiar with these types of orders, though at least he had permission to retreat at some point. Meanwhile, in the later days of August, we saw more Bulgarian settlements like Yablonitsa and Vratsa liberated, while the Russian Tsar approved a planned offensive to take Orhanye, which is now Botovgrad, as well as Sofia, which would, in essence, kind of further cut off Pleven from easy resupply. Now, by this point, Osman Pasha was offered terms of surrender for his garrison at Pleven, but he refused. Instead, he led an attack which attempted to break out, but this failed. 
the likelihood of an Ottoman breakout was getting slimmer and slimmer as the Russians made further advances behind and around Pleven, taking Oryakovo on the Danube and soon after taking Pravets, which opened up the road to Orkhanye. By mid-November, Etropol was liberated and the Ottomans retreated from Orkhanye. The city fell to the Russians the next day, followed soon by the fall of Kutlovica, which is now Montana. So, if you look at a map of Bulgaria, and I highly recommend, again, you use the map I provided on the uh, blog post for this to follow the war, because otherwise, even if your Bulgarian geography is outstanding, it's pretty hard to follow. So, if you look there, you'll see that the fall of Etropol, Botovgrad, Orhanie, Vratsa, Montana, and Oryakovo meant that the besieged Ottoman forces were probably around maybe 50 kilometers from the nearest friendly forces by this point. Pleven was no longer simply encircled, it was now fairly deep in Russian and Romanian-held territory. However, this did not stop Osman Pasha from deciding to attempt a breakout. Around the same time, Ottoman forces were engaged in heavy fighting to take the Arabokonak Pass through the mountains near modern Botograd in an attempt to outflank the Russian forces advancing towards Sofia. Elsewhere, the Ottomans mounted an offensive around the town of Elena near Velikotonovo. Having seen their efforts to advance on the eastern and western portions of the Russian force really go nowhere, this new southern strategy aimed at breaking through the Russian rear and disrupting their advances from that direction. Late November saw intense fighting as towns like Zataritsa changed hands several times. Critically, around this time, General Totleben received information regarding where Osman Pasha will attempt his breakout. This meant the Russians had two full days to prepare. During these two days, Tsar Alexander II approved a proposal to grant peace terms to the Ottomans, although this wouldn't happen right away. Now, early on the morning of November the 28th, the expected Ottoman breakout attempt occurred. Units from Pleven began crossing the river Vit to the northwest on makeshift bridges along a two-mile front. They initially found some success, taking the first line of Russian trenches opposing them. However, the Russians and Romanians managed to hold them back after intense bayonet and hand-to-hand fighting. Osman Pasha himself was wounded in the leg after his, short, his horse was shot out from under him, and, briefly, panic swept through the Ottoman ranks as many believed him dead. By midday, though, it was clear that the only thing Osman Pasha had to show for his breakout attempt was 5,000 dead and his own wounded leg. Now, with his supplies running dangerously low, he finally accepted the inevitable and agreed to the previously offered terms of surrender. The fall of Pleven thus occurred, and this was critical. The entire kind of operation of having to take Pleven significantly delayed the Russian advance, meaning that by the time Pleven surrendered, winter was in full swing and snow covered the ground, meaning that it wasn't really a good time for very much advancing, right? It's hard to advance in the winters. But the battle as a whole saw 10,000 Ottomans killed and a further 43,000 surrender. The Russians and Romanians together lost 50,000 of their own men in the operation, but they could better afford the losses, and the resulting strategic situation heavily, heavily favored them, as tens of thousands of soldiers who had been occupied besieging Pleven were now free to aid in advancing elsewhere. The British historian A.J.P. Taylor wrote of the Battle of Pleven, quote, 
most battles confirm the way that things were going already. Plevna is one of the few engagements which changed the course of history. It is difficult to see how the Ottoman Empire could have survived in Europe if the Russians had reached Constantinople in July. Probably it would have collapsed in Asia as well. Plevna gave the Ottoman Empire another 40 years of life. End quote. Now, that could be exaggerating, but it, it does give you some idea of just how important the Battle of Plevin was. That, yes, victory for the Russians and Romanian really signaled sort of the inevitable conclusion, at least in terms of victory for one side or the other, of the war. But the duration and the difficulty of this victory for the Russians and Romanians was incredibly important. Now, the great powers saw the Ottoman stand at Plevin as a sign that the empire still had fight left in it. So, in the eyes of much of Europe, the Ottoman Empire at Plevin went from being, you know, the, the corpse of Europe, the old man of Europe, uh, an empire teetering on the brink of collapse, to an empire that had some life in it and that was perhaps worth maintaining in its current form. So, certainly a huge diplomatic blow against the Russian coalition. But regardless of all this, for now, the war was still going to rage on. Tens of thousands of Ottoman troops marched through the snow into captivity, and many fell prey to the elements along the way. The day after the surrender of Plevin, Alexander II held a service to honor the dead and graciously returned the sword of the captured Osman Pasha as a sign of respect, further cementing the extent to which the Ottoman fighting there had really created a greater level of respect for Ottoman soldiers. A few days later, a parade was held in Plevin as well to commemorate the victory. But despite the fall of Plevin, the war was not over. The day after these solemn events commemorating that particular struggle, the Ottoman garrison at Ruse began counterattacking the Russians around the village of Mechka. By the evening, however, the Ottomans had been pushed back to Ruse. This was one more sign that the war was turning against the Ottoman forces. Yet another arrived the day a day later when Serbia finally agreed to declare war on the Ottomans yet again after obtaining Russian financial backing. Thus, the Ottomans were now facing Russia, Romania, Montenegro, which had never stopped fighting, uh, and Serbia all at once. Essentially, only Greece was still sitting the war out. However, all these military capabilities couldn't overcome the diplomatic and geopolitical realities of the war, as the British Minister of External Affairs also issued Russia a memorandum in which the British government announced its firm opposition to any changes in the status of Constantinople or the Bosphorus Straits. But whether the British Empire could back that up, well, that remained to be seen. Over the next few days, the Ottomans withdrew from and set fire to Elena in the central Balkan mountains while Tsar Alexander II left the front lines to return to St. Petersburg. With their entry into the war, the Serbs began an offensive to take Niche and soon took Kula, while the Russian politician Knyaz Vladimir Cherkasi was now in charge of the administration of liberated Bulgarian territory, sent a letter to the Tsar listing the principles for establishing a civilian government in Bulgaria. By mid-December, the western portion of the Russian army began crossing over the Balkan mountains after facing some Ottoman artillery attacks around Shipka. Many were caught in a snowstorm, but within a few days they'd crossed the mountains and retaken some villages to their south. 
Still, the snowstorms did persist and led to a temporary Russian retreat from the Entrable Balkan mountain and in the west closer to Sofia. They also had to make some retreats. General Gurko described the process of moving his soldiers towards Sofia in the, in the bad weather with these words, quote, Probably we would not have crossed the mountain were it not for these silent and strong Bulgarians who brought us bread and hot food. They prompted us to remove the horses to harness their oxen to the guns, and so went the first party to pass through snowdrifts and freezing cold. End quote. No doubt throughout this war, the help of local Bulgarian peasants and folks was vital for the success and aid of Russian and Romanian soldiers. Now, to the north of Sofia, the Serbs were making good progress, capturing Pirot while fighting for Niche continued. By December 17th, things were looking worse for the Ottomans, as a Caucasus Kazakh brigade got within 15 kilometers of Sofia, which again, remember, was the capital of the Rumelia Vilayet. Their forces in Ruse, though, did begin bombarding Gheorghiu across the Danube, but that was more of a symbolic act of defiance than a real tactical or strategic move on the part of the Ottomans. Now, as the Serbian army advanced, one of their officers named Skokolov rode ahead of the town of Trun and proclaimed an uprising there. Soon, he and around 1,000 local forces controlled an area around Bresnik, Kustendil, and Trun. This was territory on the border between the Sofia region and the kind of Macedonia region and was coveted by both Serbia and Bulgarians. Thus, this move seemed to indicate the possibility that Serbia was rushing ahead to exert more influence in the region ahead of a peace agreement. However, quite ironically, Sokolov was actually in favor of the region going to Bulgaria and not to Serbia. But for now, this is simply another front in the wider war. Now, in another indication of just how bad things were going for the Ottomans, Suleiman Pasha was now working to prepare a new line of defenses along the Maritza River, meaning the fall of Sofia in most of the Thracian plain south of the Balkan mountains now seemed inevitable, as more and more Russian troops crossed the mountains by the day. As the Russians advanced towards Sofia, they encountered Ottoman forces under the command of British-born Ottoman general named Valentin Baker, leading to, I, I like his title, Baker Pasha, which just sounds very silly. But it's kind of ironic that uh, now the Russians were fighting Ottomans led by a British man. Now, Baker Pasha attempted to hold off the Russian advance so a larger Ottoman force could retreat and, well, despite being nearly encircled, the tough terrain in the winter snow held off the Russians for long enough for the Ottomans to achieve their aims. Ultimately, the Ottomans did retreat and set fire to the village where they had been staying. With this out of the way, on December the 20th, the Russians finally advanced on the outskirts of Sofia, and fighting for the city began. The next day, the Russian troops took Gorny Bogrov and fought a fierce battle to cross the Isker River near what is now Vrzdebna, so just kind of north and around where the airport is. By nightfall, the Ottomans simply set fire to the bridge across the Isker and retreated to Sofia proper. So, for those of you who've never been to Sofia, if you want to look at a map of it, the Russian forces were advancing on the road which now leads from Sofia to Botograd, helpfully called Botovgradsko Chaussee. Uh, it's a nice thing about Sofia. The major kind of avenues leading outside the city are named for the place that they go to. So like Tsaregradsko Chaussee is like the Istanbul road, for example. But 
Still, remember, at this point, Sofia's population is probably barely above 20,000, and so the city's entrance proper is closer to where Alexander Nevsky Church is now, and far from where it is today above the airport. A day after the fighting on the Iskar River, the Ottomans attempted to set fire to Sofia and flee, but their attempted arson was stopped with the help of some foreign consuls in the city. Thus, on the 23rd of December, 1877, at around 2 p.m., the first Russian troops entered Sofia. A celebratory mass was held in the ruined St. Sophia Church in the presence of General Gurko. You can find a photo of the church around this time in the blog post linked in the description. Now, meanwhile, another Russian force wheeled around and blocked the Ottoman route of retreat towards Plovdiv from Sofia. This forced the Ottomans to quickly retreat towards Pernik to avoid being completely encircled, and as a result, around 6,000 sick and wounded Ottoman soldiers had to be left behind. Although many Ottomans did escape Sofia, the road to Plovdiv was now open for the soldiers under Gorko to basically move to the city. Within a few days, they had liberated Ihtiman, which is on that road, and engaged the Ottomans around the famous Trajan's Gates, where Tsar Samuil had defeated the Byzantines nearly nine centuries earlier. Elsewhere, Russian forces were marching down the Tunja Valley towards Adrianople, potentially getting ready to cut off another route of retreat for the Ottoman forces still in western Thrace. All that is to say, the situation for them was dicey. In the last days of 1877, Russian and Bulgarian forces liberated Kazanluk, Sopot, Karlovo, Koprivstica, Klitsura, Samokov, Panagurishte, and many more. The Serbs, for their part, finally took Nish. So it should come as no surprise that all these towns and cities fell as more and more Ottoman commanders and soldiers surrendered, and the Ottoman Ministry of War finally telegrammed the head of the Russian army to inform him that Mehmed Ali Pasha had authorization to begin negotiating peace on behalf of the Ottoman government. Although, on the same day, the Austro-Hungarian emperor reiterated his position that he was firmly opposed to the creation of a greater Bulgaria in a letter to Tsar Alexander. So, knowing that the British were still their staunchest allies, the Ottoman Sultan Abdul Hamid II now sent a personal plea to Queen Victoria herself, asking her to mediate peace. Although this specific request was denied, the British government did ask for Russia to give them a guarantee that it would not take Constantinople or the Bosphorus. So again, as the war is kind of wrapping up, Austria-Hungary and Britain are both getting more and more desperate to ensure that the peace does not harm their interests. So with that, we're going to wrap up this momentous year, 1877, and this episode. Now, I thought I'd be able to cover this war in two episodes, but it's a lot to get through, so we're going to need one more part three episode to finish it. And, well, I think after that, we'll probably have one more episode, kind of more covering the Congress of Berlin and the aftermath of the war. And with that, we will wrap up season six. And, well, then we'll have the usual summary episodes. And I'm very excited, hopefully you are too, to finally cover the first mostly independent Bulgarian state that we've been able to talk about in about three years. So don't miss the next episode coming in a few days, and I'll catch you in that one. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast, again on hold because of COVID, at bghistorypodcast.com, and well, you could check out all the other great stuff connected with this in the episode description.
So take care.